Welcome to Raising Our Voices. I'm Maria, and here in the studio is Suresh, all the way from Perth. Hi, Maria. How are you doing? I first met Suresh when he was working at the Epilepsy Foundation of Western Australia, but he's also the immediate past president of the National Ethnic Disability Alliance. And a few other things, I think. Yeah, yeah and, a, and a variety of other things. I think at last count, my uh, my tally was around about 42 different committees of one kind or another. How do you keep track of 42 committees? Um, I've been on about 10 and that was more than enough. Yeah, technology is a wonderful thing. Um, I, I, I do remember, however, you know, there's a friend of mine who used to be on similar numbers of committees and uh, one of which was a paid directorship. And what he would do is he'd get the, all of the documents provided to him about a month, uh, you know, about a week before the meeting. And he engaged his um, eight and 10 year old children to just go through and put highlighters on different things. He wouldn't read any of them, but it just got, it made it look like at the board meeting that he'd actually read them and, and highlighted things. So um, I, I need to work on my two, two boys to do that as well, and then I'll be right. Uh, no, look, technology is a wonderful thing, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a beautiful period of time between midnight and dawn that um, I can catch up in the That you work. can catch up on work or sleep. Mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, as you know, I, um, you, know you, you would know from my Facebook pages, I'm an I'm a, um, avid walker. I, I walk about 10 kilometers every day. Uh, I've done about six this morning. And uh, when I do, uh, you know, it's a sight to behold because I have my headphones on listening to radio, uh, community radio, of course, um, and doing Facebook entries and my cryptic crossword and my Sudoku all at the same time. So, you know, you can see that uh, if I had to do board reports, this would be a perfect opportunity. I've downloaded this thing called um, iTalk on my phone so I can record. I, I, I've been known to record whole radio programs and then just get on into the studio, plug it in, and away it goes. It's wonderful. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> You haven't come all the way from Perth to talk to me about ways to creatively use my walking time, though, have you? No, 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 not at all. (laughs) We were going to talk about the issues that people with disabilities Mm. are experiencing with the Australian migration system. There have been a number of cases of people with disabilities being declined permanent visas or even a cut some where it was a temporary visa. Can you give me some examples? Mm. Look, going back over the last probably five years, I would have dealt with about 28 cases of people who have been denied visas, either uh, temporary visas or permanent residency visas of various kinds. And um, of those 28 cases, I've actually managed to get, and I'll explain the process in a minute, but um, I've managed to get the the um, approval being granted to those people in about 26 of those cases. And that that's a huge success rate. That but, is a great success rate. <laughs> yeah, but I, I must say that those are the 28 cases that have come to me. I hate to think how many others have gone through to the keeper and we've managed to deport people who could possibly be making a massive contribution to uh, this country purely on the basis that um, they have one member or another 
in their family. It doesn't have to be them that has the disability. It could be a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife who has the disability, and we will just deny them entry to the whole family into this country. It's just bizarre. Because those examples of people that Mm. have been refused visas, they include couples where both people were working um, and who had a disabled child. Look, let me, I mean, we we started doing, probably one of the first cases we did was um, Dr. Muller in uh, in Horsham. And uh, Dr. Muller's case was a well-publicized, well-documented case. And look, anything I say in respect of these cases um, will only be public information, clearly, because all of the rest would be confidential to them. But Dr. Muller's case is widely reported. I've written about it uh, many times in various media as well. Um, Dr. Muller was the only doctor in his area of Horsham and he um, had he was on a 457 visa as a number of people are and after the expiry of the 457 visa he applied to um, get permanent residency visa and his son um, was a child with if if I remember correctly he uh, either had downs or autism I'll, I'll uh, stand to be corrected on that, but um, he had a, a condition of one, one of those two. Now, uh, we then denied permission to the whole family purely on the basis that there was one member of the family who had a disability. And the argument that's put by the um, Australian government and the DIBP, the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, uh, is that uh, there is a clause in the Migration Act that says if you are going to be a person or the family is going to be, and I will use the terminology that's used in the Act and in explanatory memoranda to the Act, it says that if you are going to be a burden to the taxpayer. Now, the very thought of using terminology of that nature is just abhorrent, but And you can follow the reasoning. I'm not justifying it, but the reasoning is this. We were trying to keep TB out of this country. Now, TB was a condition back in the 40s that would have cost the taxpayer in terms of uh, medical uh, treatment and the like. Uh, And and the figure was set back then in, in the early days that... If the person was going to be uh, good for the treatment, if that person was going to cost more than $25,000, then we could deny entry on the basis that that person was a burden to the taxpayer. Now, over time, we've managed to get governments to increase the $25,000 to now get to $40,000. However, and that's sort of less than inflation and, and, since nineteen fifty eight. Absolutely. And and but let me also say that that forty thousand is not an annual cost. It's the cost over the life of the person. So you imagine even simply school fees for a child and we're looking at children who may be three, four, five years old, um, who have the disability causing the family to be denied the uh, permanent residency visa, that child would have another 12 years of schooling. 
and your average cost of uh, fees would be, even if you picked a figure, uh, let's leave aside pub- the uh, the private schools and just look in terms of, you know, school fees and and um, you know excursions and the like. You're probably looking at a couple of thousand dollars as a very minimum per per year, uh, possibly around about the sort of five thousand dollar mark. Straight away over the twelve year schooling period, we're talking about a figure of sixty thousand, immediately causing that person to exceed the forty thousand dollar limit. So it's and then you start to look in terms of medical treatment, social treatment, etc. But what it also does now th- that was the provision that was put in to, to exclude people with TB because it was a disease that would be quite expensive. Over time that has been interpreted much more broadly because it doesn't actually specify the condition that you have to have to be excluded. So now we see that people with disabilities who are considered by the DIBP, the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, to be a burden to the taxpayer, exceeding $40,000 over their life, are going to be denied, and they're going to be overrepresented in that space. They're going to be the people who are going to be denied entry. So coming back to your question in terms of the examples, we started out with Dr. Dr. Muller, and over time we've dealt with various people. Um, let me give you a, an example, another one of a, of a medical practitioner. Uh, Dr. Aziz works in the medical system in Perth. Um, she is a highly qualified doctor. She's part of a, a very large group of 457 visa holders in the WA health system. Um, who are there providing care and medical treatment to people in Australia. She has a son who has a certain condition of cancer, who is also being treated in Switzerland. And the child has been treated in Switzerland, and the Swiss have given a guarantee that should any recurrence occur in that child, they will fly the child to Switzerland and continue the treatment and it's it's real cutting edge of uh, medical technology there. Uh, they will continue the treatment completely free of charge. They are that confident in their treatment. Dr. Aziz has been denied permanent residency in Australia because of the fact that she has a child who has cancer, who could potentially be a burden to the taxpayer. That's the abhorrent nature of this. We have Cesar Sofocado, who's uh, again a doctor, medical practitioner, whose wife contracted breast cancer in Australia, and that's been, he's been denied permanent residency because she has breast cancer. So I, I go back to this whole issue. I mean, six years ago, um, I went through a period of, of about uh, three weeks when I had a, a heart attack, a quadruple bypass, and the discovery of a cancer, all in the space of about three weeks, and you know, they removed my stomach and uh, I had chemotherapy uh, over a period of six months, chemo and radio. Now, had I not been a permanent resident and a citizen at that time, if I had applied for permanent residency, I would have been denied that. The fact that over the last 40 years I may have paid $50 million in taxation in, on my income was irrelevant. So, So we've been arguing with governments to say, look, you need to look at the net benefit approach. The net benefit approach simply looks at Dr. Aziz and says, how much tax have you paid? And I suspect that Dr. Aziz would have been paying well in excess of $40,000 a year on her income. She would have been paying tax of that nature. So over a 10-year period, she's probably paid about $400,000 in tax. And we're now denying her 
because her child is going to cost the taxpayer about $40,000. Potentially. Potentially, over their life. And, and the ridiculous nature of this can be um, highlighted when now you mentioned that I was with the Epilepsy Association in Western Australia. Now, um, I was approached by a migration agent who said, look, I have a, a person, a young lady, who's wanting to come here from Zimbabwe. She has epilepsy. She's uh, being denied permanent residency. Uh, sorry, she was being denied a tourist visa on the basis that she was going to be a burden to the taxpayer uh, because she has seizures, as do 25,000 people in Western Australia, as do 278,000 people Australia-wide who have seizures. Now, because she was going to be denied uh, residency, the migration agent contacted me and said, look, can you give us a letter of some kind that we can produce at the tribunal hearing? And I said, not a problem. I went back and looked at how much funding every epilepsy association around Australia has received over the last five years and then divided it by the number of people with epilepsy over that same period. And it worked out that the government funding of epilepsy in Australia was round about $7 per person per year. And I then put a case to the department that they do one of two things. They either increase our funding to the level of $40,000 or deny this person uh, or, or they allow this person to come in. It took about 45 minutes for them to change their mind and they granted a visa. So, But again, I emphasize that look, those are the ones we know of. You know, Dora Karius was uh, a girl who did her uh, PhD here at Melbourne University or uh, might be at RMIT. Now, she has a brother with um, Down syndrome who lives in Costa Rica with his mum. He's 31 years old. He wanted to come. He and his mum wanted to come and spend time with Dora uh, over Christmas, and they were denied a permanent, uh, a temporary tourist visa on the basis that he was going to be. There were actually two reasons. They 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 said that one, he was going to be a burden to uh, us as taxpayers in this country. They wanted a visa for one month. Um, if you're on a tourist visa. Uh-huh. You don't qualify for any services from the government. And they required him and his mother to undertake private health insurance, which they did. They went and got private health insurance. So, again, there was going to be no cost even if they went privately. But at the end of the day, they were not able to come and spend Christmas with Dora. They ended up going to America. Now, I must say, though, when we talk about these issues around migration and the disability and the denial of residency, um, Canada has exactly the same arrangements. Now, their figures are slightly different. They are, I, I'm not sure what the figure is that they use, but New Zealand has also similar arrangements. So people with disability are going to be denied this. The fascinating thing is that I think it might be later next year the Worldwide International Down Syndrome Association is having its international conference here. Hopefully people will be able to come to the conference. Right. So it'll be an international conference with only Australian speakers uh, because no one else will be allowed in. So it is bizarre. But um, so, so we have all these variety of 
um, conditions. And, and we're coming up with, for example, there was a, a, a young girl uh, who had uh, cerebral palsy and epilepsy, and, and she was probably about four years old. Um, the government, the Commonwealth Medical Officer, estimated her cost of care if she was going to be granted a permanent residency, uh, coming in at about $2.8 million, clearly exceeding the $40,000. So how do we work the $2.8 million? I have no idea. But it goes to every item of expenditure that could possibly be incurred by a person who needs to live. And so it's everything's included in there. So the government looks at that, or the DIBP, the department, then looks at the, this application for permanent residency. I'm dealing with a young cha- young family in Wollongong at the moment that are going through a similar sort of exercise. Mum's a nurse in the aged care system. Dad's a, a taxi driver. They're contributing considerably. Mum, uh, in particular, is in that aged care system providing care and attention and treatment. Um, all of that's just ignored because we look purely at the cost for their child who is 13 years old, who has autism, and the uh, CMO, the Commonwealth Medical Officer, has estimated the cost of her care to be off the order of $1.8 million. So, So we go through this process. The applicant, the um, person who has someone with disability in their family, applies to the department for permanent residency or tourist visa. They are denied that because the Act is very clear. The Act just simply says you will be denied this if you're going to be a burden to the taxpayer. So there's no discretion there. There is no uh, opportunity for the department to overturn that. So the department goes ahead and denies permanent residency immediately or temporary visa. You then have to go through the process of applying to a tribunal for review of the decision. The review process may take anything up to between 18 months and two years. So in that two-year period, you will be on a bridging visa, not entitled to any taxpayer-funded services, having to pay for even things like taxis, um, you know, if you are blind and you're needing to go to work, I'm sorry, you are a uh, on a, a person on a bridging visa, a temporary visa. You're not entitled to, to entitled to any taxpayer funded services. However, we will take tax out of your income. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> taxpayer funded is being funded by you, but that's all right. We we're not going to allow you that that uh, luxury of having access to our services because we've paid for it. So you go through the process of a tribunal hearing. The process can take two years, and it may cost you around about $10,000. This is on top of the application fee that you've paid to the department, which currently stands at about 8500 So now you're up to about $20,000 of expenditure and two years of waiting and incurring heaps of expenses over that period, even though you're paying taxes. At the end of the two-year period, the tribunal will simply say, I'm sorry, we have no discretion. We can't change the law. We are going to have to agree with the decision of the department because the legislation is very clear. So they deny any overturn of the decision. At that point, you have only one more opportunity, and that is to apply to the minister for ministerial intervention and discretion. 
And that's the point at which I get involved to try and get um, numbers of signatures on change.org petitions and various other things. We know we get all of the, the various groups, the advocacy groups, to get involved. Um, in the case of um, Dr. Horsh, uh, Dr. Muller in Horsham, we ended up with about 50,000 signatures. These days I aim to get somewhere between sixty and 80,000 um, signatures to a petition so that we can put pressure on the minister to overturn the decision. So that's the process we have to go through. Again, it's a costly process. It may cost you know, five to $10,000, but generally it's for people like myself where there's no cost involved because we are advocates and we just do this uh, because we want to make sure that their human rights are abided with. You said that people are mm-hmm. told immediately that their visa was had been rejected. Um, due to the health requirement. Uh, does that suggest that because my partner has applied for a permanent visa and he has a mild disability, yep. but we have been waiting to hear a decision for 15 months at the moment? Wow. Um, I looked up on the immigration website and apparently it's 20 months for 75% of decisions, 25 months for 90% of decisions. So hmm. so we don't know because we haven't been told where we haven't been told where um rejected we haven't been told where accepted and that's that state of flux that is just so very very difficult to deal with you know you you're looking at the the mental health of someone who has to who doesn't even know whether they have a permanent stay here they don't know whether they can commence you know, setting some roots in place so that they're established here because we don't know where we're going to be in two years' time. We don't know where we're going to be in three years' time. And and I don't think the department fully appreciates the mental health anguish that they're causing to people in delaying decisions of that nature. And I'm, yep. you, know, you Ricard- know very yeah. well. Ricardo has put up a Christmas tree in our lounge room and mm-hmm. says, is this the last Christmas I'm going wow. to have? In Australia. Wow. And and just think of the impact on, you know, n- not only on Ricardo, but also on yourself around those issues of saying, well, w- what are we going to do post-Christmas? What what happens next? Where are we? We, we have no idea. So it is... Oh, the- and uh, the government will uh, not give Ricardo any benefits because he is on a bridging visa. On the other hand, they will cut... They've decided that they're going to cut my pension and put it down to the partner rate. Oh wow! You know this is the stupidity of this whole system. It's and look, as a nation, we have to come to terms with this issue around taxpayer-funded services. I don't have an issue with people saying, um, "Look, we're the people who pay the taxes; therefore, we should be entitled to have uh, the benefits of those." But if we're taxing people who are temporary residents here, then they are taxpayers just the same as you and I, who are permanent residents and citizens of this country, but we're not allowing them any benefits because they're taxpayer-funded. Well, hang on a second. The last time I looked, they were taxpayers. So it's bizarre. 
And the Migration Act has been mm-hmm. exempted from the Disability Discrimination Act, hasn't it? Yeah, and that's the problem that we face. You know, the Migration Act has a specific exclusion from the uh, Disability Discrimination Act application. So we can't argue that there is a disability discrimination going on because the Act doesn't apply to the Migration Act. Likewise, our signing of the UNCRPD was on the basis that we will still retain the rights to make decisions in respect of migration, which would not be part of that convention that we've accepted. But we'll proudly stand somewhere out in public and claim that we are signatories to this convention and therefore it makes us good guys. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't make us good guys until such time as we actually abide by those things. So if there are people listening to this program Mm -hmm. um, who know of somebody who has been refused a visa or even if they are concerned that they might might be refused a visa because of their disability, what should they do? Look, I, I think the easiest thing would be to try and contact me because uh, at this stage it, it, it seems like uh, I've become a little bit of a lone voice in this area. There are not too many advocacy organisations uh, because they just I, I think they get to a point where they get tired of hitting their heads against a brick wall. Uh, unfor- unfortunately, I'm not a person who is uh, unduly worried about a brick wall and... Uh, <laughs> And, and having to beat my head against it, I'm quite comfortable in doing that. So I will I will come up against ministers on a regular basis, and I'm happy to do that. Uh, some of my favourite ministers are the immigration ministers. Um, so I, I'm happy to take on any of those issues. Look, best way to contact me would be via either Facebook or um, if you Google me, uh, if you just Google Suresh Rajan, uh, and it's S-U-R-E-S-H and the surname R-A-J-A-N, you'll find heaps of contact information out there. Um, and uh, I'd be happy to pick up and run with a lot of this. I'm, I'm actually, I've got uh, three cases that I'm dealing with in, in Melbourne, uh, one in Wollongong, one in Queensland, and I'm based in Perth. So <laughs> there's no issue around those things. <laughs> and I'm happy to visit them. I, I've, the Melbourne, I mean, this trip, I came here for a couple of meetings, but I'll be visiting a couple of the families uh, this afternoon uh, just to get an update on where they're at. And uh, again, the one here in Perth is, is just another bizarre situation where we have a 50-year-old um, lady with aut- autism, a mum who's 80, 80 years old, a mum has applied for permanent residency. She has six family members, six children, all of whom live here. But we've uh, allowed her permission to stay. But the 50-year-old with um, autism is going to be sent back to India uh, to a place where I've gone and looked at the facilities that are available. And she's also nonverbal. And this person... Um, and has been living with her family her whole life? Her whole life. Her mum has looked after her whole life and she is not going to survive the institutionalisation that would be necessary. I've looked at the institutions in, in India and let me say it's the bulk of the work that is being done in autism in India is about children with autism. Very little, almost none, has been done around adults with autism. And that's where if Cheryl were to go to India and be institutionalised, she will not survive. So we will confine this girl to her death if we continue to hold out that she's not entitled to a visa. And just purely on a human rights basis, she should be entitled to stay with the rest of the family. Thank you for talking to me, Suresh. I'm delighted to, and we'll do it again next time. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.